Hi, everybody. It's Jonah Pallone, and welcome to Owner Operated, conversations with small business millionaires. If you're interested in learning about the stories of American small business owners and why small business is great for our country, this is the podcast for you. In my role at Midstreet, helping people sell their companies throughout the Southeast, I've been fortunate enough to get a behind-the-scenes look at the lives and organizations of hundreds of business owners. I created Owner Operated to let you in behind the curtain. Follow me on this journey and subscribe to my newsletter at jonahpallone.com. All right, Billy, thanks so much for joining me on Owner Operated. It's a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thanks so much, Jonah. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. So tell the audience who you are and uh, and what do you do? Yeah, so my name is Billy Van Eaton, and I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and I've operated a commercial landscaping business for 10 years that we bought 10 years ago. So we do that, and we do work at office buildings, industrial parks, retail centers, HOAs, apartments, kind of a slew of these different properties. And, and we do the maintenance side where we have the recurring service. And then we do enhancements, which are like flowers, pine straw, mulch, installs. And then we have some construction work we do also. Got it. That's awesome. So I'm going to take a bit of a different direction on this podcast. The first thing I want to ask you is, what is it like to introduce yourself as the owner of a landscaping company to family and friends? What's that environment like? Oh, man. my <laughs> So my first job out of college was at SunTrust Bank. And I, know I was so grateful for it. It was, it was a great first job but it was pretty boring for me. And, uh, and I remember like going home for Christmas when I was younger and, you know, my parents were like, he's a banker. He works downtown and it's great. And the reality is that I was stuck in a cube farm and had no flexibility. Again, very grateful for the job. It was a great learning experience, but not a great fit for me. And now where that a bank job is great party talk, as I say, or great Christmas conversation. Now it's the opposite. Now it's, uh, what do you do for work? I do landscaping. And the like response nine out of 10 times is, oh, that's interesting. I cut some yards in high school. And it's like, oh yeah, nope. cool. That's, that's great. I've got a buddy that owns a janitorial business in Virginia. And we went to college together and he's a great friend. And he's in a similar boat where he tells people I clean pullets for a living. And he's like, I, I literally do sometimes, but that's, <laughs> that's not like my day-to-day gig, but there's a time where you're doing all that. So it's, it's a good reminder of kind of where your identity should come from and not come from. And yeah. So, yeah. Well, I think it's funny because people who listen to this show probably respect and admire what you do, you know, just because of the target audience. But just in general, when you talk to people about, hey, I'm a landscaper, they're like, oh, okay. You know, and it's when I went to school growing up, like, you know, high school, not so much, but more college, there's more of a sort of like a prestige thing. So I went to Carolina and it was just like, you know, not everyone, but especially in the business school, it's like you would tell someone, Hey, I'm working at a small business. Cause I do, right. I work at Midstreet, and it's like, Oh, okay, great. That's, that's awesome. Well, uh, when are you thinking about working at a, at a larger group, you know, moving on to investment bank. And in my head, I'm just like, you don't get it. <laughs> you don't yeah. understand what I've got here. Like what I, what, you know, it's, I'm super passionate about. It. I love it. But to people, it's like, they like the name too. You know, you were probably at a bank where it was like, you know, the name recognition is important to you. Right. And like the, the status and stuff. And a lot of people play status games. And so that's what I really mm-hmm. like about you. And, I, and I, what I like about the show is that it's not about that. It's about, you know, choosing what you are actually interested in choosing something that's cool. So mm-hmm. that brings me to my, my next question for you. How did you get into the landscaping business? Well, you know, how did it start for you? Yeah. So there is something called a search fund and I did not know that this was a thing 10 years ago or 12 years ago, but 
that's essentially what what we did where I had started a few different companies. My first when I was still at, at a bank. And then I ended up getting a job in real estate, got fired from that job in real estate in 2009. And getting fired was the guy that did it, yelled at me, cussed me out. I mean, it was a, it was a wow. terrible experience, but a great lesson in how not to fire someone. And so I went, I was very single at the time, and I started working at Ace Hardware and tutoring a kid in Spanish. And I, this guy that I went to church with that ran a seminary here in Atlanta, Steve, he started mentoring me. And we just kind of walked through this process. And if you, if you imagine a, an infinity sign, and if you think about the bottom left side is where a company starts, and so that the company grows up that curve all the way to the right, and then it peaks at the top, and then companies eventually fail, and you have to restart them. So that infinity sign is kind of a business life cycle in a very a very rough way, if you will. But and then people also fit on that that diagram as well in certain areas. So you know, a big part of the reason that I didn't enjoy my job in banking was that the banking job I was in was at the top right of that curve, which would be like a mature industry, a mature business. It's you know, it's, those people are incredibly valuable and important. But it's kind of like, hey, come in, do your job, don't mess it up, hit your sales goal. You can leave at five, you can come in at nine. And again, those are incredibly valuable people, but that's just not how I'm built. And Wired, that's yeah. why I was really miserable in that place. And so Steve helped me understand some of that. And I started companies with people and then by myself, we kind of came to this thought that, well, I think I'm kind of on that bottom left side of the curve where I can start things, but I naturally want to start editing things. I want to start making things better and improving them. And to do that, you need to have momentum. And, and then the way that you get momentum in business is by buying a business. And so it was just very like quick, logical walkthroughs. We're eating chicken soup. And it was like, well, I guess you buy a business, but I have no idea how to do that, Steve. Was it homemade chicken soup or was it store-bought chicken soup? <laughs> no, it's from this awesome Mexican restaurant <laughs> over in Decatur, Georgia. It was, it was great. And so it was just like, you know, a kind of a naive approach of like, well, I'm going to go buy a business. I have no idea how to do that. And I need yeah. to raise money to do that. But I, a part of the process for me was really trying to understand like, how am I built? Because I knew that I was not built for the banking world, at least in that role and the roles that I was in as an underwriter. And I knew that I wanted to be with people and with momentum. And, and so part of that was just self-discovery of who am I? How am I built? And how can I go use these gift sets that I've been given? and steward these things. That kind of led us on this journey to go buy a business. And so we went out and raised some money and still working at Ace at the time. And I remember like going and pitching to PE groups, investment bankers, business brokers, I mean, like yourself and, and pitching. And I was like, I want to buy a business, especially in the early days. I want to buy a business and I want to run it. And yeah. they look at me like, so are you like, uh, do you have a fund or do you have like a backing or what type of company you want to look for? What size? And the first like meeting or two is like, I'm not totally sure. I'm still figuring that part out. Can you help me with this? And it was really awkward the first couple of meetings, yeah. but I, I learned through the process of, okay, how's this go? I, you know, what a criteria sheet is. Okay. I'm looking for X, Y, and Z. And, and then really just started narrowing it down just to different industries and sizes. And I said, okay, I want to buy a company that is under a million in EBITDA, so under a million in cash flow. And I wanted to buy a company in Atlanta. And so I didn't want to move from here. And then over time, I narrowed it down to, I wanted something that was simple, proven, and scalable were the three keywords that I looked for. And that was probably, it took me about 
18 or 20 months to buy a business from the moment I said, I want to go do this to actually closing on the deal. And it, it probably took a good six months or eight months to figure out what type of business I'm going to buy. And that was really done through trial and error. And so we, this is in 2010 and 11. And so buying businesses has been around for thousands of years, but not at the volume of today. I mean, today the private markets are just huge and, and they were just not that competitive back then. And so I remember, I remember being in these meetings and thinking, okay, how can I understand these companies? Well, I had this kind of background in finance and in cash flow analysis and reading tax returns from my day at the bank. And that was really what I leveraged to understand these companies. And so I, I would meet with companies all over the place. There was a model car company that I met with that was fascinating. And they were around Atlanta and they manufactured in China. And uh, I got to learn about manufacturing in China and learned that I did not want to deal with that. There was a, a story that these friends in Michigan told me where they were going to buy this dog treat business and, and they didn't get their shipment. Their seller didn't get his shipment. And so he had to fly overseas with a briefcase of cash meet a guy oh, on a goodness. loading dock and give him the briefcase. And then he got his shipment. And I remember like talking to these guys. It was like that. I just don't want to deal with that. There, there are enough hard things in running a business. And I don't want to fly to China with a briefcase and meet some random person on the dock. <laughs> so I immediately said, I'm out of manufacturing in China. That's not my, not my deal. And then, you know, look through other companies. There was a company here that they did bomb remediation where they would go into like war torn areas and they would take basically duds out of the ground that didn't go boom. And they would make sure that they wow. were safe and diffuse them. And it was fascinating. It was based out of here. And the guy that started it was this really unique combination of like an engineer and a sales guy. So a, a really fascinating personality, super smart guy. And I remember talking with them in, in their warehouse and they were practicing on some bombs or some casings that didn't have anything on the inside. And I remember looking at it and thinking about simple, proven, and scalable. I was like, this does not look simple. I sure hope it's proven. And I guess it's pretty scalable. It's a really unique niche, great profit margins. But man, I don't want to be working on that and say, uh-oh, that's a problem. And so I just started narrowing down these different industries. And, and so I started thinking about what is an industry that where I have kind of friends I can call on and ask questions to. And so that was really in janitorial, landscaping, and transportation. So there are these guys in Texas and Virginia that have done both janitorial and landscaping, these guys in Michigan that have done transportation. And so, so I said, okay, those are kind of three industries that I think I can get my, my head around and that I can understand. And that, and that if I have worst case scenario, again, I can go cut grass, I can clean a toilet, I can drive a truck. So I liked that kind of worst case scenario versus like writing code for something. I can't write code. And so that was a software company. It was a, was a no-go. So we, that was the approach. And, you know, through that, through those two years, put 10 different offers out for 10 different companies and, wow. and nine of them blew up for different reasons. And I remember we found the small landscape company on biz by sell. I remember I looked at it. It was like 800,000 in revenue. The guy that owned it had owned it for about two years and it had spun out of equity residential, which is a huge apartment company. And so he was the in-house horticulture guy, spun it out and he maintained it for a few years and he was just burnt out. And so we met with them really quick. I mean, he was a great guy, had a great business and felt like this company was big enough that I wasn't going to drive a truck, but small enough that I was going to do basically every other function. Or I had a business partner in the business also. So we were going to do every other function basically and thought, well, this is these are legs for us to stand on. So let's go try this. Wow. Funny point about the closing that I have a tendency to 
you know, they, they talk about things like that you don't want to do your first year of marriage. They're like, don't like buy a house, don't start a business, you know, trying to have a kid, like, because things are just really disruptive. And the, I remember I left the closing for the business on like November 30th. I picked up my fiance. We drove to Birmingham and got married that weekend and went on our honeymoon for two weeks. And we, I remember we came back and I remember I looked at her and was like, uh, you know, getting ready for the mon- the first Monday back. And it was like, I guess I go to the office tomorrow. I have no idea. I've never done this before. This is a new, new adventure. And so got up at four and went to Waffle House and then met the guys at the office early. And that was 10 years ago. Wow, man. That's an awesome story. That's 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 so cool. We're going to dissect a lot of what you just talked about, too. I was taking a couple of notes. Um, let's take it all the way back to when. So you were working at a real estate company, right? Mm-hmm. Let's take it back to that. And you got fired. And you decided to take a job at Ace Hardware and tutor some kids. That must have been a, you know, we were talking about jujitsu a little bit before this episode. That must have been a massive ego check. Yeah, it was, it was definitely very sobering. I mean, and the, the Ace Hardware is located in Buckhead and I would see a bunch of my friends there and friends, girlfriends. And so it's awkward. Very awkward. And you know, I needed a job. My dad had a small bookstore growing up. And so I grew up working in his bookstore. And so I was very used to that atmosphere and retail atmosphere. And, but it was, you know, it was definitely tough and it was not, you know, I had not dreamed or gone to college to go work at Ace Hardware. That's not why, you know, really what I wanted to do, but I needed a job. I needed to get paid and, and they gave me an opportunity to do that. And so it was, it was a great lesson. And this is how you survive. This is what you go do. And you just had to do it. Had to do it. And so, so you were working at that Ace Hardware and then you, you know, you, at the same time you were involved with your seminary. So you were on track to be clergy. Is that how that works? No. So I met Steve through our church. Okay. And so Steve was head of the seminary, but he also went to the church where we, where we went. And so we just connected a lot through that. And he was this, he passed away several years ago, but he was just this really smart, wise guy that was just brilliant and incredibly kind and generous. And so he would he would have no problem spending time with people and mentoring them and just being their friend. That's awesome, man. It sounds like he was a really big, he helped you with your kind of your turning point in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much. Yeah. He, he kind of laid out these questions that I don't think anything we went through was overly scripted or very scripted, or I don't really think he read these things from a book. I think he was, he was very, very well read, but I think he just learned and then he found ways to translate some of that knowledge in ways that, you know, people like me could understand it and could really grasp what he was talking about. And, and so he kind of walked me through these four questions that were really self-reflective and they had a little bit of a 360 review where I had to ask other people for some feedback. And, hmm. and it really helped me again, in my kind of early to mid twenties, it really helped me to understand, and I'd just been fired, but it really helped me understand like, okay, these are some of the things of how I think God made me and how he built me. And, and here's some, some things that I'm not, and that's totally okay. And so how do I use that? What's that look like? What were some of those questions? And, and also, so talk about, you know, let's talk more about how you figured, you kind of discovered yourself is what it sounds like. You discovered who you really were and what you were really good at. And at the same time, you know, a couple of years later, started to translate that into acquiring companies, right? That they seem very linked. So mm-hmm. what were those questions like and how did that help you self-identify? Yeah. And funny enough, I'm sitting at my desk right now and we, we moved my desk at home. We moved a year ago. And when I opened my desk, I actually found his business card, C's business card from 12 years ago that I forgot where wow. I put it. And it's got the questions on there. And so the questions are, and they're not grammatically correct, but the questions are, what am I really good at? 
And so that first question is just trying to expose, like, what am I good at doing? Not what am I good at doing that I can make money at, or that is, you know, or that's my deepest passion, but it's like, what am I good at? What am I good at? And so it's really taking this log of writing those things down. And that's one you do yourself. The second question is, what do I really, really like? And that question, again, is you're trying to exhaust this list of what I really like, not what I really like that's practical. So I, I love Spanish. I love languages. I've studied a, a few different languages and, and I love them. And my wife and I always say, man, if we won the lottery, I would go learn languages. She would go to cooking school and it would be so much fun. But I can't make a living off of languages. Uh, so that's not super practical, but it did go on my list. I love soccer. I will definitely not be, you know, in the major league soccer league. And I love football. I'm not going to be in the NFL. So like, I still log those things on there. The third question is, what has God given me a heart for? And so it's really trying to understand what are some of these things on the inside that maybe pull in my heart? Is it for community? Is it for justice? Is it for having a healthy family? Is it for helping people that maybe don't have a lot of chances? Or what's that look like? Or just being a good neighbor. So mm-hmm. what does that look like? But again, it's kind of a, a pause and you're trying to log what's going on in my heart. And then the fourth question is, what are the areas of persistent struggle in my life? And so, again, it takes you into a pause and says, okay, what are some of these things that I, maybe these lies I'm believing or some of these just areas that are tough for me? And so that might be, hey, am I, you know, if you're dealing with anxiety or depression, it might be like, hey, I just feel like I'm not good enough, or I feel like I'm stuck in this area, or I can never do enough. I think for, yeah, I think for men, a lot of men do, they struggle with, am I enough? It's kind of this deep there's this deep pain that a lot of things come out of. And so it's trying to really expose some of those and get them into the light. Uh, That first question that that I said, what am I really good at? That actually is a question you go ask some people and you say, Hey, Mm -hmm. I want you to tell me what this looks like. You know, your parents can be a little bit skewed because, you know, my mom was like, Billy, you can do anything you want to do. You're so smart. (laughs) Anything you put your mind to. And it's like, thanks mom. That's very sweet. And I love that. Thank you. And it's great to hear their, their input. You know, my brother was kind of like, I don't know, man, you do whatever you want to do. And, but I wanted them to have a voice in that. You know, it's really interesting. That question, that is a great question of what am I really good at? And then when you go ask other people to tell you what you're looking for are themes in those answers. So mm-hmm. you're looking for like, you know, people saying three or four things in maybe slightly different ways, but you see this consistent track record. And then you see it with people that maybe you went to college with, maybe people you met post-college. Maybe people in high school or junior high or elementary school, these people in different points in your life, and you see like how maybe how you grew or what are these things you developed. And that becomes some of your blueprint for kind of your heart posture for what I would like. So like not denying yourself these things that you like, and then what am I good at doing? And then you start to put all that together and say, okay, where can I do some of these things? How can I do some of these things? And you know, a friend of mine from college, since Cordy and he, he loves to surf. And he always said, man, I am not gonna be a professional surfer. He said, but I think that God really put this on my heart that I love to surf. And, and so I want to make sure that I find times to do that in my life because it's something that I really enjoy. I think it's an intentional thing there. It's not something I'm going to do seven days a week, 365 days a year, but it's something that I want to make sure that I do. I think that's a good reminder, like listening to some of these desires that are going on that can be healthy desires and doing this. I think so too. Yeah. And that's an awesome framework. So he gave that to you and you took some time to reflect on it. And then 
when you had your answers, what was sort of the next step? So that's sort of, you know, you did the reflection, you kind of figured out some stuff. People told you what you were like, you know, what you liked, and you kind of answered these questions. What was the next step though? Just keeping that reflection and then trying to translate that into action. Like, how did you do that? Yeah. So I think that, so one of the things that came up that was a consistent theme was I really love math and I love finance and I love Excel models and uh, financial models. I, I am actually terrible at reading and reading comprehension. I'm very bad at that, but the flip side is I'm generally pretty good at math. And so I wanted to do something with numbers and I, and I knew that I, you know, people, what people said is that I can be a visionary and can and take this vision and spread that out and go take action on something. A theme that some of my friends said is that they felt like I was very courageous and in moving forward in that direction. And so when I started seeing some of those themes, some of those lined up to me of like an entrepreneur and because uh, an entrepreneur has to kind of go blindly into something and hope for the best. And they have to be willing to stick it out and have grit to do that. And they've got to have people around them that can give them advice along the way. And then, I, you know, part of the, one of the themes I heard was, hey, you're good at kind of taking something and improving it and moving it forward. And again, finding that theme of, well, maybe we need momentum for this. Maybe that's, we buy a business to do that. And so, yeah, it was, it was not a magic formula. It was not like a one plus one equals two. It was kind of some of this raw material that, that we got together. And we said, okay, what do we do with this? And how do we, how do we live that out? That's awesome. And, and so you decided that, you know, you wanted to do a search fund at the time. It probably wasn't even called a search fund, right? I think that's a relatively new term, but you, you decided you wanted to buy a company and you kind of, before that, you were sort of on this path of figuring out what you wanted to do. You decided to buy the company. And then what were your next steps? How did you learn more about this process, especially back then when, you know, now you can pick up any, there's so many books, so many good resources, podcasts out there to learn about search funds and how to do it right. You know, what did you use as a resource back then or who did you use? Yeah, man, I wish. So last year I read the Harvard book, How to Buy a Small Business. And it's it's a literal playbook for a search fund. Mm-hmm. And I think they published it in 2014, if I remember correctly. And I was doing my uh, search in, in 10 and 11. And so it hadn't come out yet. And when I read it or I listened to it, I told my wife, I was like, I don't know how it happened, but we somehow blindly did all these things in this order. And I don't know how that happened. And, you know, so it was a lot of trial and error. And it was a lot of like, you know, there is definitely a faith component of like, okay, I think this is where I'm supposed to go and go do this. And I don't really know it all yet, but I trust that if this is the direction that that God wants to take me, then he's going to figure it out for us and was willing to do that. And so he did. And so, I mean, through the process, again, learned about, learned about how to value a company, learned about multiples, learned about multiple arbitrage, learned about why you give certain multiples to certain types of businesses or even certain types of revenues. Learned about all those different things where I started to, again, combine that with my financial background and understand cash flow, which I think really tells a story about a company and just started going and meeting with business owners. And I mean, I met with, again, with those 10 offers we put out, there were some business owners we didn't put offers out. We didn't give offers to, and we just said, this is not a good deal for us. You know, there was a, there was a company that I forget her name, but it was a fiber optic company. And a woman was the owner and operator, incredibly smart. I mean, had built a fantastic business. And at the time it was me and another guy that were doing this process. 
And I was full-time in the process. The guy had a job at a bank. And so we would kind of trade thoughts and ideas. And, and we sat down with her and loved her business. I mean, great revenue, great profit margin, but she is a, she is a women-owned business. And that's where she gets a lot of her contracts from is through having that, is through being, having that classification. And when we spoke with her, she, I'll never forget. She said something, she said, you know, sales covers a multitude of sins. And, and I've loved that because I do think that that is pretty dang true of like, hey, when in doubt, just go sell more profitable work. Like that'll really cover up a lot of things. And yeah. landscaping, we say that pine straw covers a multitude of sins. We're like a fresh cut of pine straw on a property, man, it makes it look great, even though you might have some dead grass over here and some trees need trimming. It's a great way to freshen it up. And, and so through that process, really, just like the manufacturing in China process, said, okay, well, if we buy this business, we're going to lose all these contracts because they're stuck to this designation. Uh, that designation. Yeah. And so that's going to be hard for us to buy and operate, but it's also going to be really hard for us to sell that one day if we ever want to sell it, because we're going to have a pretty small buyer base for that. And so it's just really trial and error through, through that process of what's this look like and kind of getting into the business and understanding how it's going to work or not work. Yeah, that makes sense. So when you're, when you're doing the search fund, was your first step to raise money? I have that book, but I haven't read it yet. So I'm, I'm, I'm not as familiar with all the intricate details, but I do know what a search fund is and kind of at a basic level, what they do. What was your sort of your first step just at a high level? Was it to go out and raise money after you figured out what you wanted? You know, so you said that you went on a couple of meetings earlier in the intro, you said that you went on a couple of meetings and, you know, you didn't really know exactly what your thesis was, but after a couple of those, you figured it out. Were you, trying to raise money then before looking at opportunities or are you doing it at the same time? You know, walk me through that process. Yeah, I wish it was sophisticated. I joked that I did a rednet version of a search find <laughs> because I didn't really know what I was doing. And the book lays it out, again, very clearly how you should do it and what that looks like down to like the dollar amount you're supposed to raise. Wow. And, you know, it, it's a fantastic instruction manual for that process. For me in the process that, that I ran, I didn't raise money at first. I was still at ACE and was tutoring in Spanish and, and said, well, I need to start getting deal flow. And so I'm going to make a list of PE groups and investment bankers and brokers and VCs and start pitching to them and just learn what that's like. And so, so I just started meeting with people and telling them what I was doing. And through that process, started hearing these themes of like, well, what are you looking for? What's your criteria? Mm -hmm. What size range and what multiple do you want to pay? And I remember, you know, there was definitely some bluffing in some of those of meetings course. early on of like, you know, smiling and nodding like, oh yeah, yeah, multiples. Yeah, I definitely understand what you mean. Like, you know, leaving the meeting, Googling like, what is a multiple? Oh, goodness. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, or what is a criteria or what? Yeah. It was all these things and I had no idea in the beginning. So it was, it was a brutal learning experience and again, very humbling because of some of the comments, but started piecemealing it together and was kind of like, we're going to figure it out. It's going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah, so we did. So I, I did that for a few months, then loosely partnered up with this other guy that worked at a bank here in town. And so we would start looking at deals together. And so I was full-time. He was definitely on the side, but it was somebody else I could be talking about deals with. And we could go have meetings together and it gave me some credibility because he was older than me and I was a mid-20-year-old, didn't fully know what I was doing. And so that was really helpful. And then through that, ended up reconnecting with a guy I went to college with in Virginia. And these two guys had a landscaping business in Virginia Beach. And so they ended up saying, hey, we love what you're doing. And so we want to invest in your deal. And, and then it went from there. And then we ended up buying a company. So it was 
this very unorganized, you know, way that we did it, you know, looking back again, I really wish the book would have been published by then, or I would have taken a class or something. Yeah. I would have, would have saved a lot of money, a lot of heartache, some relationships along the way. I mean, it was, it was a pretty ugly process for a while. Well, it's funny for me being on my side of that, because I obviously had, one of my main jobs is to do kind of investor relations, buyer relations. And, and you could just tell within 30 seconds, if somebody's actually kind of been through this before and understands what they're looking for, you know, you got those guys and gals who come in and, and you can obviously tell what bluffing is too. Like a lot of times, right. You can kind of tell if, if somebody's faking their way through it, but you can also tell if somebody's really experienced and they understand exactly what they're looking for and they don't want to waste either of your time. So it's just funny to see like from your perspective, because you're on the other side 10 years ago or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. It's funny how that world works. It's it's kind of similar to real estate in some ways, but it's it's probably a more sophisticated business to be in. So yeah. this concept of raising money for a search fund has always fascinated me, right? So you know, you were working at Ace Hardware and, and tutoring on the side. How did you sell folks on your ability to, you know, run the business successful? Because, you know, for people who are listening, obviously a search fund, you're, you're raising money to search for a business to eventually buy. Well, there's, there's a lot of different types, right? But that's one of the main ones is they'll fund your lifestyle. Is that what happened with you? Is it, did they fund sort of your lifestyle or was it more so just the eventual commitment. Very late in the process, I started getting a $30,000 salary Got it. where now I think if you follow the book correctly, the salary is 100 to 120 or something. And so again, we had no idea and that was, I was single and that was fine. Yeah. I could live off that at the time. But yeah, so generally you raise money, a, a, a kind of a typical or traditional search fund is they say it takes 24 to 30 months to find a business and buy it. And so you go raise that amount of money for that time period, usually for a single searcher. So one person that's looking for a business, I think it's like half a million dollars that they want to raise for a paired search, which is uh, fairly common. Also, you raise double that, uh, give or take. And that is supposed to be your seed money, essentially, to get you through an acquisition. But you know, I think I saw a stat that one in three search funds don't actually make it. They never find a deal. There's also some statistic where a paired search fund produces a much higher return to investors than a single search. So I think there's some mm. movement going towards that because it's just a better return. And you've got, you can find someone, if someone's really good at finance and someone's really good at operations, let's say, then you can share those skill sets at the ownership level, which makes a lot of sense to me. Makes a lot of sense to me too. That's interesting. That's really interesting. So just to that last point, when you're raising the money, did you create a pitch deck? I mean, what were the selling points for you? How did that work? Yeah, I did not create a pitch deck at first. Again, it was ugly. We, this guy that I partner with here locally, we knew each other through Bible study and we'd been friends for years and just thought we'd go do this together. And so there was, yeah. it was kind of both of us, neither of us really had to like justify the idea because neither of us had done this before. And we, we both thought, okay, we're, somewhat smart people. We're honest people. We're going to go figure this out. And so we went forward like that. So it was very loose. The two guys in Virginia, I'd gone to college with one of them. I'd lived in Virginia for a couple of years also when they started their business. I knew them, I knew them very well. I knew their business very well. And they just said that they trusted me and liked me and thought I'd figure it out and liked how I worked. And so, yeah, I, I wish there was some like, yeah, I made this killer three-page you know, pitch deck that I was awesome. And it was, but that was just not, that was not the case for that. We have done pitch decks before for some of our other companies, 
that, that are you know more formal, but for that, no, it was, we had a one page criteria sheet that was a very ugly Excel sheet. And we did start a company. So we, we had a little LLC called Ingenium Partners and I made business cards on Vistaprint. And, and then we, a, a friend that works in real estate here, we got to use his office address, which felt like it gave us some legitimacy. And, <laughs> but yeah, we kind of, you know, bootstrapped it together. Awesome, man. So last point on kind of the search fund world for you. So you had 10 offers on the table, various went through for several reasons or various failed for several reasons. And then finally, the was it the 10th one that, that really sealed the deal? What was yep. the feeling like when you knew that that one was going through? What did that feel like? Yeah, uh, man. So I remember sitting in, I lived in a house with two other guys and that, and I worked out of my bedroom at the time. And I remember looking at this deal on biz by sell and it was small. It was pretty inexpensive. And I just had this feeling of like, I think this is the company we're going to buy. Like, I think it's, it's affordable for us. It, I know the industry, like I can understand it. I've got some contacts in it and just had this like weird gut feeling of like, I think this might be the one. And we moved pretty quick on it. And I remember we, again, it, things were not nearly as competitive back then. And, and this was a very small company. And so we, well, we talked to the broker who was great. This guy out of Athens, Georgia, he did a really fantastic job. And we just started underwriting the company and met with Cliff, who was the seller and really liked Cliff and thought he was a great guy and had a great business and saw kind of a vision for how we could grow it. Felt like it hit the criteria of simple, proven and scalable of you know, simple and that, hey, we go cut grass, uh, we trim trees and we plant bushes. I can understand that in my, in my head. It's proven. It's like, well, grass has grown for a long time. So we're probably going to keep cutting it. It's probably going to keep growing. So I feel like that's a fairly proven business model. And then scalable, not in like the tech way where you look for this hockey stick growth, but in this kind of just old school business way of we're going to have good operations, good account management, good collections, good sales. And if we have these kind of foundational pieces with the business, and if we can do a good job with those, we felt like we could win the game. This show is brought to you by Midstreet Mergers and Acquisitions, a business intermediary based out of Raleigh, North Carolina, that specializes in selling businesses generating one to $25 million in revenue throughout the Southeast. If you own a business and are considering an exit, check out their website and contact them at midstreet.com. That's M-I-D-street.com. Now back to the show. So describe the business when you bought it and then describe you coming into the business and transitioning into it. And then I'd like to follow up with over time, how did you evolve the company? So let's start with what was it like when you came into it? What was just talk about the emotions, but also just like practically, you know, who was there? Was that awkward? Like talk through that process. Yeah, it was definitely awkward. So the guy that was supposed to partner with me here in town backed out at the last minute. And, wow. and then the guy that ended up operating the business with me for 10 years, he, he is essentially a cousin for one of the silent investors that we had. And so he came in like last minute and I kept running the deal. He was actually out in Montana. He was an elk hunting guide for, for a while. And so I ran the due diligence and the process. And then literally when I left to go get married, he drove his flatbed truck to the, to the uh, reception. Caroline, my wife, got to meet him for the first time. And, uh, wow. and I was like, I guess we just bought a business together. And uh, <laughs> it's just a cr cr crazy process. That's but crazy. 
Yeah. So we, we bought, the business was small. So there was, they had maybe 13 or 14 people, most of which were crews, landscape crews. And then there was one production manager, operations manager. And so that person was great. So he ran quality control. He ran, he opened the shop for the crews, closed the shop. He was fantastic. But that was the only management person at the company once the seller left. Wow. And, and so it was teeny. And so pretty quickly we said, okay, I can do our finance. I can do our bookkeeping. Um, I can do sales for us also. And then my partner at the time said, okay, I can do operations. I can, I can help run point on that side. We quickly learned because you know, when we bought the business, I didn't know the difference between a begonia and a pansy, which is a problem. Those are two very different flowers. I couldn't have told you if something was Bermuda or fescue which those are also very different types of grasses. And, and so I had a learning curve. I had to get up very quickly. And so I had Cliff, who was a seller, I had him come up with kind of a cheat sheet for us. And so we came up with 25 plants and of different uh, plants and flowers and grasses and said, okay, I need to learn these things. I'm going to learn them in a month. And so that I can be able to talk my way through these things because I've got to learn this language. And, and so we did. And so he would uh, kind of take us to school and we go visit properties. And then we'd say, okay, that's a Dorfinian Hawthorne. Okay. This is a Dork Griffin Holly. This is a Clara. I mean, you start like naming these plants and seeing these traits. And again, I had no knowledge of this stuff beforehand yeah. and, and started learning it and, and enjoyed it. And then I found myself when I would be on runs outside, I'd find myself logging these plant names along the way of like, hey, that's Vespi over there. Okay, that one's Zoysia. This is Bermuda. It's Ili Agnes. Oh, I hate that plant. It grows so fast. And and so like, you know, just learned along the way. But, you know, through that, also learned within the first few months that, man, my partner and I are terrible account managers. But we need someone that can be really consistent with our customers, that has the horticulture knowledge that we don't have. We, we had enough to be able to sell it and kind of be dangerous, but man, we really needed that expert in there. And, and so within probably four or five months, we said, okay, we've got to hire an account manager. So we fortunately found one from another company and that was a great hire for us. And so that kind of said, okay, we can offload this account management side, ultimately some inside sales to this person who has the knowledge and the experience. And that worked well for us. And then I still ran our accounting for a while. And then I said, I'll go do sales. I'd done sales before, felt comfortable with that. And then again, my partner said, I'll do operations, which is great. Uh, Cause you don't want me cutting your grass. It'll be very messed up if that happens. <laughs> and so we quickly hired a, as we were growing and I was doing a lot of our invoicing and payables, we hired a friend's mom to be our bookkeeper at first. And she was lovely and fantastic. It still is. And she was part-time with us and she had done bookkeeping for a magazine and then had, they'd kind of transitioned her, they really moved their office and magazine business is really tough. So they moved their mm -hmm. office. And, and so she had the mindset and skill set, And most importantly, she was trustworthy. I mean, she was, she's amazing. I live across the street actually from one of her daughters right now. So I see her all the time still. And so we just kind of took these baby steps of like, okay, we need someone to help with, with bookkeeping. And I remember when I first had to let somebody else do invoicing, that was really hard for me because like your cash letting flow, go. your invoicing, yeah, letting go. I mean, it was like, you can take over payables. I don't care about that. That's fine. But man, invoicing, those need to go out on the first and, and then collections and then depositing checks. So like, those are some of the things that I did 
probably too long mm. because I really enjoyed seeing, okay, I sent this amount of invoices out and then I collected these checks and I put them in our bank account and our bank account goes up. So we have cash to make payroll. And just through that process, like I enjoyed that. And when I had to give that up, it was scary. And it's still a little scary. Like I'm checking that, that stuff all the time. I mean, those, those have become some of our our big rocks or our, our KPIs that we look at, you know, constantly. What, mm-hmm. What's that like? I remember our first year in business. So our industry is seasonal and we are the most cash poor in August and September. And we're the most cash rich in April or May. And that's because in the summer, so we have our maintenance revenue that are on fixed contracts, but our labor is actually a curve. And so by the end of the summer, we've exhausted that curve and we're coming down. We've overspent on labor through the summer, which is typical for us. And then we generally make that back through the winter months. We didn't know that our first year. And and so we uh, made the decision to go out in in August and buy a turf care truck to go do our own turf care, which is a great idea to do that stuff in house. Not a great idea to go pay cash for that at our, at our lowest cash flow part of the season. Mm. And we ran out of money. And this is my first year of marriage. We bought a business and we just ran out of money at the company. And it was my fault because I'm the one that's supposed to know how to do this stuff, but I didn't know how to do it. Wow. And I remember for like days, I would check, we got our mail at a PO box at the time. I would check our PO box multiple times a day and was just like, I was an anxious wreck. And I was like praying for miracles over and over again. I was like, please let there be checks in here. And for days there weren't checks. And I just kept seeing our cash count go down and then it went to zero and we need to make payroll. And I finally just broke down in tears in front of my wife of like six months or eight months and was like, we don't have any cash in the business and we need to put some in there so that we can pay everybody. I'm really sorry. I will figure out how this doesn't happen again. It was brutal. And so, oh my God, really for the next year, I spent a tremendous amount of time learning about cash flow and learning about our cash flow and tracking our cash flow. And because I did not want to have that feeling again. We didn't have a line of credit at the time. I wanted to not have that. I thought that was silly to have one. And really, in my view, it's a great backstop to have uh, just in case. And so just in case, quickly, we set up a line of credit after that so that we didn't have to have that conversation again. And I just started studying our cash flow and it's like, we're we're not going to buy stuff in those months. We are we're going to finance some stuff actually that helps our cash flow because we have recurring revenue and so we can then pay recurring debt as opposed to recurring revenue and lump sum debt. And so it went from there. So that was, you know, that was the first year. Also the business we bought, they still maintained the equity residential properties in Atlanta and that made up the large majority of the portfolio. Mm. And equity had been shrinking their market share over years in Atlanta. And when we bought them within the first, I don't know if it was year or two years, but they sold off all their properties. And in our industry, when a property sells, you have a very small chance of actually keeping that with the next company, especially as a really small player in the market. You just don't have those relationships. And so we saw our revenue starting to disappear. And so we were growing the business, but then at the same time, we saw this revenue that we had bought started going out the door. And that was also not a great feeling to have. And so we had to replace that business plus grow the business. And we were resource constrained and knowledge constrained, but we had a lot of we were very naive and we had some courage and some grit. And we just thought we're going to, 
we're going to give it our best shot and see what happens. What a story, man. I mean, this is what when people say, I want to be an entrepreneur. This is the kind of stuff they have to realize happens in the real world. You know, it's, it's like, it's not always the sexiest stuff. I mean, it's uh-uh. Billy ran out of money and he had to figure his life out. I mean, that's, that's not easy, <laughs> you know? And it's, it's always like, we glorify entrepreneurship and that's great. It's great to start companies and buy companies and, and own businesses and, and even real estate's very similar. But at the same time, you have to realize that it's not all peaches and cream. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and also the other thing is people, again, I, I, this is a constant theme of the show. It just is people look at you and they see you at chapter 10 and not at chapter, not even chapter one yet. You know yeah. what I mean? So like, you went through all of those things to be in a position now where you're a lot more stabilized, but you still had to go through those things and they happened, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and who knows what other things will come? You know, that's just part of business ownership. Yeah, I I totally agree. I mean, there, I do love being an entrepreneur. I think I'm actually, I'd I'd be a terrible corporate employee. I I have finally accepted that knowledge. (laughs) And I, you know, I do think that the entrepreneurial world is, it is, it's a very like sexy thing or something that's glorified and it can be fantastic. And I actually do love that, that space, but not everybody has to be one. And it's okay. It's for me, it's more, I have these two friends that are two of my closest friends, Mark and Chris, and they work at SunTrust Bank and they are really good employees. And they're, if you think about that infinity curve, again, they're at the top right section of that curve. They are fantastic. They're consistent. And I think consistency is like the, it might be one of the least valued things in business, but is one of the most appreciated and important functions to a business is consistency. And they are incredibly consistent. And, and that was part of my process when I was younger was, man, why can't I be like those guys that are just consistently doing this? Am I lazy? Am I stupid? And what is going on here? And it wasn't until Steve helped me understand kind of how I am built that I could kind of be in my natural wow. habitat and use that. And I think that's where this entrepreneurial place is for me. But again, it's not for everyone. And that's totally okay. My wife, my wife is an entrepreneur as well. And we are on just totally opposite sides of that spectrum. And that's great. That is totally fine. That's where our personalities fit. But yeah, I mean, there are, you know, we've had so many stories of, you know, we had this guy that had, uh, that had brain cancer and he was a really highly compensated salesperson for us. And this was five or six years ago. And we hired him. He was great out the gate. And, uh, and then he called me one night, this is probably after six months or so that he was with us. And he said, Billy, I've got bad news. I'm at the hospital and they say I have brain cancer and he was about to get an MRI or CAT scan or something. And it was just like one of those calls where you're just kind of stuck and frozen. You're like, you, wow, I am so sorry. I remember we just prayed with him and his family and I don't know what else you're supposed to do. And and he ended up having stage four glioblastoma, which was terrible. And they called it the the widow maker. And so we made the decision at a company level. We did not have long-term disability insurance at the time. We do now, but we did not at the time. And we said, okay, we're going to keep supporting this guy. He, he made more money than us. He was highly compensated and he was not producing sales when he was sick. And our team said, we're going to come around and support him. And so we did. And so people gave their entire Christmas bonuses to he and his family. What we found out, now he did have cancer. He actually passed away, unfortunately, I think two years ago from it. Uh, but what we found out six months later after his diagnosis was that he had started a company on the side as well. And he started bidding against our own stuff, using our own resources. 
And oh, one of goodness. our clients was involved in it. And our we had opened an office in Nashville at the time, and he was helping us run that marketing and grow it. And all of a sudden, our sales pipeline disappeared. And we didn't know what was going on. And we kept hearing these weird stories. And, and we started reading his email, and which I hate doing. And we started seeing where, man, this is really bad. With all this stuff that he had bid for us, he now bid it 1% less through his own company. And he is winning these contracts. And, and so we called him in, we fired him. We ended up, we ended up suing him actually. And because we had to shut down Nashville, we had to let people go. And what, what our team said was, we are very sad about the financial hit, obviously, but we wept for this guy and his family and he stole from us those emotions. And that is the most hurtful thing. That's so uncomfortable. It was terrible. And I remember sitting in mediation and we were getting nowhere. And the mediator told us that he said, hey, I want you to know, because this guy talked about he had beat glioblastoma. It, was, it wasn't going to come back. And, and the mediator said, hey, I want to tell you guys something that that my dad and best friend died of this. And it, you don't beat this thing. It comes back. And I want to lay out a scenario for you. And we've been in mediation all day. And this was a six-figure loss to us. I mean, it was crushing to us. And so we were in mediation and he said, let me lay out this scenario because we're not getting anywhere. He said, you're either going to continue to sue. And I don't like suing people. So this is not what I like. That's a, that's a, no one makes money except attorneys. Yeah. And he said, you're either going to end up suing a cancer survivor who's married with five kids and never get any money. Or you're going to end up suing the widow of someone that died of cancer who has five kids, oh. none of which gets any money. That, those are your options right now. And we tried to argue with the mediator and understand more. And the reality is, those are the options, neither of which are good options. And that was a really hard, bitter pill to swallow. But I also think those are just some of the entrepreneurial stories that are out there. I mean, I think any entrepreneur, if they've been around long enough, will have those stories of like nope. not making payroll or someone lying to you or stealing from you. Or, and it really stinks that, that that exists out there, but it does. And that's that's tough. It's not all like Instagram on I'm, I'm in front of an airplane and here's my Rolls Royce. And I mean, that sounds awesome. And there are folks that do that, but a lot of it are just like good businesses like landscape companies or janitorial businesses that we want to treat our people really well. We want to grow a good business. We're going to have some pickups along the way, but hopefully we had more wins and losses as well. I and mean, then that's, that's great. That's awesome, Billy. That's a good outlook. I love that. One thing I think we haven't mentioned here that is sort of crucial to what you've been talking about. And we alluded to it, which is kind of like letting go, but this concept of pulling yourself out of the business over time. So you came into the business, you bought the business, you were heavily involved with the operations of the company or, or the finances and sales and stuff like that. How did you start to, you know, a lot of owners might've just stayed at that level and that's fine for them, right? People have different goals in life. For you, your objective was to grow the company and to step out of that role and oversee strategy, the sales team, et cetera. How did you think about that at the time? Was that a very intentional practice? You know, were you reading books like E-Myth and Traction Now? And you know, were those in your head or was it just more so, okay, you know, I want to, I want to grow to this higher level? How are you thinking about that? Walk me through that. Yeah. So I've read both those books and actually love them. Those are great thoughts. So I listened to E-Myth a few years into, into running the company, and I love the way that it articulated, okay, there are all these hats need to be worn by people. And you, you might wear as the owner, you might wear all of them in the beginning, 
But over time, you want to figure out which ones am I not good at doing? Which ones can I fire myself from? And eventually you're taking these hats off one by one. And I love the way that they, they kind of articulate that and sketch that out. And I got that when they said it was like, yes, that's what I've been doing. I've been doing bookkeeping and sales. Well, I can go hire someone to do part-time bookkeeping that's mm-hmm. less expensive than a part-time salesperson. And I can go do more sales to cover that cost. So that was part of the process of like, okay, I'm going to fire myself from some of these things over in bookkeeping and I'm going to do more sales. And then as we kept growing, it was, okay, well now my t- I'm doing sales part-time because I'm doing these other functions in the business too. We need a full-time salesperson that's doing this all the time. So it was this, again, not sophisticated way we went through it, but we knew some of these core functions. Mm-hmm. I'd say that five years ago, Four or five years ago, I we had we split our company in half and we started another company. And we put a what we called a branch manager at Cumberland to run the day-to-day of that company. And that was ended up not being a great hire, but we it was a learning experience, like a lot of things in business. But learned that one, when we had these two companies, I was the CEO of one, we raised some venture money for that deal. And then we had Cumberland that I was still the CEO of, but we had day-to-day people doing that. And it was chaotic because we had different types of meetings. We didn't really know what we were reporting on. So we would try mm-hmm. to like have these like catch-all meetings and talk about things we thought were important, but they were really just like relational catch-ups. We never ended up moving the ball forward. And it created a lot of chaos for me and for my team. And I remember getting through that process and thinking, we've got to have some consistency with these things. Like if we want to be able to manage multiple companies or multiple branches, even we've got to have consistency with that. We have to have some format for that. What's that look like? Mm-hmm. And I had heard about traction, about the entrepreneurial operating system from some people. And I had tried to implement something called 4DX, four okay. disciplines of execution. The and Stephen Covey or? That's right. Yeah. Okay. And so it it is really around kind of BHAGs, I think, or rock with these goals and then articulating goals of from X to Y by when. And I think it's great. And I tried to implement that in our company to make our company morph into a culture of accountability. And I did a terrible job doing that. (laughs) It was, I was like militaristic about it and we were not disciplined at the time. So we were loosey goosey. I was trying to get us this like military style discipline did not work. And it was a complete fail. And, you know, you fast forward another six months or so, and that's when I started thinking about EOS again and traction and said, okay, I'm a, I should read these. And so I read Rocket Fuel first, which really talks about a visionary and an integrator. And when I read it, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm definitely this visionary. And oh my mm-hmm. gosh, I'm a terrible integrator, uh, but I'm trying to integrate these things. That's why I think this may not be working. And it gave me, again, kind of more knowledge of, okay, well, I need someone to help with that integration side. And I can go play this visionary piece. Well, this is my natural habitat. And so started with our meetings because our meeting schedules as a visionary, I'm super ADD also. I would be changing our meetings all of the time from the time we meet to what we talk about to activities to, and that's just chaotic. And, and so we started using a level 10 meeting from EOS and that was great. And we made it our own meeting. And that was the first thing we implemented. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm going to do this very different. And so I ended up reading the instructions to our team seven times over seven weeks. And I just read these this boring page of here's how we're going to have this meeting. And my thought process was, it's really hard to change behavior 
And when we're going from this very loosey-goosey atmosphere to trying to have more accountability and structure and processes, I'm just going to read this stuff over and over. So it just becomes ingrained in all of our heads. And so everybody knows, here are the rules, here's how we're doing this. And so mm. for two months, two or three months, I'd start the meeting, I'd read the instructions, and we'd have the meeting. And we learned to edit parts of the meeting, but end up getting this kind of consistent theme, like, okay, this seems to be working. So we peeled off a few more things. Through that process, I've known for a while, again, the way that I'm not a good corporate employee, I've known that I'm not a great day-to-day person. I'm a bigger, I'm a better big picture, sales, you know, let's get something off the ground. And then once something is kind of working, my ADD wants to go do something else or wants to change it up. And that's a typical visionary in the EOS world. And an integrator is really great at taking that vision and creating consistency and form and process uh, and gaining traction through that. And so we were hiring for a controller. And through that process, Kim, who's our president now, she interviewed for the controller position. And she had 21 years of experience at a competitor, had been fired through as a private equity owned competitor. So they were being flipped over and over again. And they basically just joined up two regions and she drew the short straw after 21 years, which was brutal. And so we got a chance to interview her. And in the interview process, I mean, she smoked everybody else in the process was, I gave her some of these tests on financial tests and she did fantastic. She had worked her way up from working just in the office and then as like an assistant and then became a regional controller was her last role at, at this competitor. She told me about some of these jobs she had done where she she was in charge of all the admins for a certain area. And so they have all these branches. And she said, she said, so one of the one of the projects that I did was I helped understand and uncover what a skill set was for each of these admins. So if you have an admin over on the west side of town and they're really good at payroll, they don't ever make mistakes and they're very detail-oriented. Well, let's just have that person do payroll for the entire region. Uh, okay, if someone over here is great at HR, they're great at hiring people and forms and process and the legal banners of HR, then that should just be our HR person for this area. And she was describing this process that EOS talks about. It's like an integrator of taking this problem and actually finding a way to fix it and then gain traction and consistency from there. She kept telling me these stories over and over again. And in the interview, I was like, and not only can she be our controller, I think she might be this integrator for us. And, and took the plunge and hired her. And she has been fantastic. I mean, she's... Did you hire her as a president or an integrator then? Or did you grow, she grow into the role? Yes, yeah, so I hired her as a controller. And then okay. I was intentionally starting to give her integrator-like roles, but I was not calling it an integrator. And I was not... We had we'd made some mistakes previously where we kind of put people in roles they weren't ready for. And when you rip someone out of there, that is really disruptive. And I didn't want to do that again. And I thought, well, what if I can like work with her and start like giving her these responsibilities that were integrator type type things, but it'd be, Mm. if I pulled them back, it's not going to be that disruptive. And so I love that for hiring. I love that. That's so smart. Especially when you think you have a candidate that's just above and beyond, you shouldn't just put them in the above and beyond spot put them in the spot you were going to hire for anyway and give them little assignments and, and truly see if it's a good fit. And, and that way they could feel like they've worked up to the role as well, to your point, instead of working down if it doesn't work out. Yeah, it was a gamble, but it was, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting something different. And we had been insane for a while. And so I said, let's do something mm-hmm. different. And so we tried that and for months we did that. And then eventually I had her leading our team meetings as our controller, which created a little bit of confusion with my team. But I was fine with that because 
we could always reset it fairly easily. And so did that for months and kept giving her more responsibility. And I would kind of give her coaching, you know, I would coach her after the meetings of let's work through this. How about this? And, you know, we are a very male dominated industry. And so I was coaching her like, Hey, I want you to feel more confident up there in front of the, front of this, this room of guys. And like, you've got the baton, like you've got the microphone, take control. And so we had a lot of great conversations and she did fantastic. And and eventually, probably a year and change after I had her in that role, I asked her I said, one day, I said, Kim, what do you want to do long-term? Where do you want to be long-term? And she said, I want to be in your seat. I want to be the one running the day-to-day, calling the shots. And I said, man, I am so glad you said that. That is exactly where I'd like you to be. And, and so we started this conversation further. I said, okay, what's that look like? How do we move you into this role? Again, we kind of tested it for months at this point. She was doing great. She was far better than I was at running these meetings. The team was responding really well to her. And she yeah. was just, she was awesome. How many months after you hired her, did you guys have that conversation? Gosh, we, I bet that was, I don't remember probably, that's probably nine months. Cause it was, I think maybe a year from the time she started until the time that she became the president. Okay. And when we made that announcement to the team that she, Hey, she's the president now, nothing is actually going to change with her function, but she, I gave her my office at, at that location. I wanted it to be also symbolic of mm-hmm. everybody's used to coming in this office for, you know, the day-to-day leader thing. So now Kim is going to take my literal seat and do that. And I took another office in, in the building. And, uh, and so we did that and people's response when she became the president, it was actually great. The response was not shock of like, Oh my gosh, who is this person? I can't believe this. The response was like, well, that makes sense. Well, it's about time. We wondered what was going on. And, and so the gamble worked out really well for us of like, okay, that was not disruptive. That was helpful. The team had adopted her at that point of, okay, she's our leader. And, and that, that, that worked out really well, fortunately. That's awesome, man. And, and we only have a few minutes left. So I, I, but, and this has been great. I'd love to do maybe a second one sometime in the future because there's so much here. It's been an awesome conversation. I really appreciate you being here, Billy. But Thanks. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Talents Equity and how you got linked up with Davis Webb because he introduced us. Just tell me a little bit about Talents Equity and what you guys are doing over there and how that links up with Cumberland and you know, kind of your whole thesis with that. Yeah. So years ago, when we split our company, we, we raised some VC money and we learned a really expensive lesson that at the time, I thought that if an investor's money was green, it was good. And I didn't think that culture mattered with investors. And man, was I wrong. And so we learned a lot of hard, expensive lessons through that. And part of what happened to me right after I got kicked out of that company, kicked off the board, it was a brutal, brutal process. And part of what I did was I kind of buried my head in the sand for a few months. And I didn't like that, but I wanted to be safe. I didn't like the feeling of failure. And this idea, again, going back to like 12 years ago of, I want to really steward the gift set that I'd been given. And I wanted to go take care of that. And and when my head was buried in the sand, I was not stewarding anything. I was actually just burying it in the ground. And I started to have, I started to work through that. And I started to work through reconcil- reconciling that experience and what's the next step look like and kind of had this vision for, for being that capital partner, that ownership group that I wish we would have had that would really come alongside a team and help teach and mentor them 
and just be hand in hand with them. It would not hold power over teams, but would actually just walk step with them. And so this vision was vision started to be crafted. Let's go buy and start some other companies and try to learn from the mistakes that we've made over the years. So, you know, some of those are like, man, I would implement the entrepreneurial operating system very quickly day one, as opposed to, you know, seven or eight years in. Hey, I would go hire a day-to-day operator very quickly. Hey, I will, you know, we have personality profiling that we use for our roles. And that was something that we learned through our experience. And, you know, a common hiring mistake is for a salesperson, you hire the most gregarious person in the room, but they may not be a great salesperson. They may be told once and just bury their head in the sand. And actually someone that is a very disciplined, regimented, follows a process, but maybe not the most gregarious, they may actually be the better salesperson. And so we would implement those things early on. And the hope is really to, to treat people the way you want to be treated and to help teams grow and to work in industries where maybe employees are marginalized or not given a lot of opportunities and to try to give them some opportunities. You know, unfortunately, you know, the bar is not set that high for us because people don't often treat people the way they want to be treated. They often belittle people and, or they don't give people opportunities. They're not a second chance organization or, or it's all about them or it's all about greed or, yeah, you know, we have those feelings definitely at times, but I think the hope is that we're keeping those in check and we're being accountable to those and that we're actually trying to do something better than just fill up our pocketbook, but actually like trying to improve people's lives and give them opportunities to grow. And we want to do that with more companies, more small companies that where we can have an impact. That's awesome, man. Well, Billy, I know you got a lunch to go to. I've got work to start, but definitely people check out cumberlandlandscapegroup.com as well as Talents Equity. And uh, reach out to Billy if you have any interest in what they're doing over there. They're a great group. Billy, any final closing thoughts here? This has been awesome. Man, you know, I think that I talk with a lot of search funders out there and I find them fascinating. I find them far smarter than I'll ever be and way more educated than I'll ever be. You know, I think that the book, for instance, it does a great job of being an instruction manual. But I think part of the value of being an entrepreneur is you do take an instruction manual and you make it your own. You add tweaks to it because if you're doing the same thing that everybody else is doing, that's boring to me, but it's also there's no competitive advantage. And so I would encourage people that are thinking about either starting or, or buying a business to not worry about what their guidance counselor told them growing up that everybody has to be a doctor, lawyer, Indian chief, that they can be anything a plumber, a landscaper, a, a metal fabricator, business broker. So these can all be great careers and great industries and great companies. And so I would encourage them to think out of the box from there. And then I would encourage them to read that book, honestly. That Harvard book is great. And then think about what I want to do slightly differently. What do I think I can create a thesis around that maybe gives me a little bit of an edge? That's some of the stuff that I'm thinking through. Perfect. Yeah. And I'll link to all those things uh, in the show notes below, especially the Harvard book. It's a really good book, I hear. So, And I'm putting it on my reading list. It is on one of my next books to read. So I will get that one done. <laughs> It's great. But this has been great, Billy. I really appreciate the time, man. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks, Jen. I appreciate it, man. Cool. This episode of Owner Operated is sponsored by OnTops Roofing, a family-owned and operated business servicing the Triangle area of North Carolina since 1991. 
With a long-standing commitment to quality work and customer service, Ontops has grown to be recognized as one of the most respected roofing contractors in the Triangle. They offer roofing work, window replacements, siding replacements, and gutter installation services. Check them out at ontopsroofing.com. That's ontopsroofing.com. Thank you for listening to Owner Operated, conversations with small business millionaires. Be sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter at jonapalone.com, where I share the takeaways from each episode and share any resources or tips I find valuable. And if you like the episode, please leave a review on iTunes. It really does help the show grow and send it to a friend that you think would benefit from it. Thanks so much.